Lane three. Top four to Wednesday's final. Steve Lewis in lane three. Roberto Hernandez out quickly in four. Now down the back stretch. Ismael on the left of the screen is running very, very quickly. And inside of Lewis, Sunday Bada of Nigeria. And Derek Redmond of Great Britain has pulled up with an injury. Redmond is out. Derek Redmond, the British record holder and an important member of that British 4 by 400 meter relay team as he doesn't want anybody to help him. And it'll be Lewis to win in 44.50. Look at this. He's going to try to finish his semifinal race. The British have a certain tradition of running, which you have to respect. A bizarre finish to this first semifinal in the men's 400 meters. Derek Redmond of Great Britain pulled up with an injury halfway down the back stretch. He's fighting off those trying to help him to finish the race in his lane. And now the pain too much. throughout Olympic Stadium as Redmond with assistance this time approaches the finish line he had wanted so desperately to reach. Tonight as we get started I wanted to show you all that video because I want you to think back to a time with me. Uh, something that's a summer favorite of pretty much everyone that I know um, the Summer Olympics, we see them every four years. We like to talk about them, we like to follow them. In 1992, I want to take you to Barcelona, Spain, the video that I just showed you. There was a man named Derek Redman. He had been competing, he was a runner. Um, he had been training for this moment, uh, competing, uh, training, preparing. Um, he got his travel taken care of, he was there. It was his moment, he was competing. And as he was running and he came around the corner, um, as you can see, he came up with an injury, and it turns out he tore his hamstring. Uh, what you see later is that this man who had trained to become strong, to run, he was weak, and he fell to the ground, and he got back up, and he started hobbling, and he kept going. And then you see his father come and run to his aid. And his father, who had watched his son from a young age train and run, uh, his son, who he had taken to meets, uh, had him in the back seat of the car, and then the front seat of the car. Maybe his son that they bonded over this. They spent quality time together training for moments like these, and they're on the biggest stage in the world. His father runs from his seat, runs to his son, and he helps him cross that finish line. His son crying in pain, as we saw, and this dad is saying, we can finish it together because I'm here for you. I am for you. You see, Derek Redmond finished that race today because he had a father who was for his son. Lately, 
the past few weeks, we've been looking in Romans chapter 8, and that's where our Sunday night theme is coming from. And tonight, as we dig into our text, we're going to look at a father, a father who is for us, a father who works for good. So tonight, if you'd like, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. We're really going to dig in and we're going to look at a father who works for good, a father who is for us, a father who helps us cross that finish line, so to speak. In Romans 8, we're going to start in verse 26 and we're going to read through 31. We see, in the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called to his purpose, to those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined he also called, and to these whom he called he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Tonight we're going to be primarily looking at verses 28 through 30. But I think it's really important that we go back and we looked at what we discussed last week. And even maybe one verse ahead into what we're going to get into next week. To fully understand what the writer is saying here to the Christians in Rome. You see, if we look at verse 27, we see that we have a spirit who is interceding for us. My bad, verse 26, he intercedes for us. If we drop down to 31, we have a God who is for us. Right before and right after what we're going to look at tonight, we see that we have a God who is for us. So once we understand that, we can really look at what is Paul saying to the Christians in these three verses. So when we dig into our text tonight, and we look immediately at verse 28, we see that God causes all things to work together for good. For who? To those who love God. The English Standard Translation says, for those who love God. So verse 28 immediately is bringing out this context, that all things work together for good to those who love God. So let's look at an example of someone who loved God, who kept his law, and let's look at what God did for them. If we go to Joshua chapter 1, we're going to read about this man named Joshua. Kind of cool how that works. Um, and so we're going to be reading about this man named Joshua. And Joshua had this role model. I'm sure we all have role models and mentors in our life. Um, this man that he looked up to. This man who led the children of Israel out of Egyptian captivity through the wilderness. He did all these great things. And his name was Moses. And what we see is that Moses, uh, he passed away. And all of a sudden, all responsibility was given to him by God. And God comes to him in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the sons of Israel. So right here, we see this young guy. He has this role model, this mentor. And all of a sudden his mentor dies and everything's on him. The weight of leading the people, and he's seen what God has done before, but he knows there's more to come. And so all of this weight and this burden is just put on him, and God appears to him, and God brings him these words of comfort. If we drop down to verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, we're going to see that God tells him, Be strong and courageous, 
For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God tells Joshua, be strong according to this law, a law that was given to the children of Israel from Moses that God gave to Moses. And he tells him, if you are strong and you stay to this law, you're going to prosper, you're going to have success. But not only that, God repeats a phrase in verse 9 that we've seen him repeat two times previously. It's, it's a phrase that everyone knows that a lot of people have hanging up in their houses, and it says, be strong and courageous in verse 6. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous in verse 7. And then verse 9, rhetorical question, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And then God's going to follow it up with, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When Joshua kept the law that God had set in place, and when he loved God and kept him first, God was with him and God was for him. And we see this all throughout the book of Joshua. If we flip over just a few chapters, we're going to see that the children of Israel had the conquest of Jericho. Joshua leads them into battle, and they win. They're on this great high. God is leading them. They've taken out this big enemy. They blew their trumpets, marched around the city, took it over, and then we get to chapter 7, and all of a sudden, it's like, I'm a big football fan, it's like in football, momentum just stops, right? You know, you have that big drive going, and you're driving towards the end zone, and all of a sudden there's an interception thrown on like the five-yard line. If you're a Tennessee fan, you understand what that feels like. Um, but all their momentum just stops because they get to AI, and they are defeated. They lose. And in fact, not only do they lose the battle, but they lose some of their own men. And you might ask, why? What happened? How, how did they get defeated? God's on their side. I thought the Lord their God was going with them. And what we see is we see in Joshua 7 and verse 11, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. We read that and we see they broke a law, a command that God gave them, and that led to their defeat. So then we go on to read that this man named Achan, he is the one who committed the crime, he saw everything. He took it for himself. He put it among his own things. He knew he did wrong because he was hiding them in his tent. And when they are found, him, and, it's, and the Bible says, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them to the valley of Acre. Verse 25 of Joshua chapter 7. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. You see, Achan did not follow the commands given by God, and that resulted in the loss of a battle, the loss of some of the men of Israel, the loss of all his possessions, the loss of his sons and daughters' lives, and ultimately the loss of his life. But then, once that little detour and side, side situation bump in the road is taken care of, we see that Israel goes back to war with Ai. And in chapter 8, verse 1 of Joshua, the Lord says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. There it is again. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
Take all the people of war with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. God comes to them and he says, I'm going to give this city to you. But here are the ground rules. Follow it. Keep my commandments. Do what I say. And when, when they did that, when they did things God's way, they won. Later we see that Joshua is going to lead victories against Mecca, southern Palestine, northern Palestine, and the list goes on and on and on until they reach the promised land. And eventually they are in the land that God had promised way back a long time ago. God was always on their side, and God always wanted to give the victory to them, but God wanted them to do it his way. Just as God wanted good for them and God was on their side then and he wanted them to do it his way, we can see that the same is in place for us today. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. When we go to Romans 8 and we see that God does good to those who love him, and we see that in order to love God, we must keep his commandments, we see that when we do things God's way, he is going to bless us. So one application that I take away from this is that those who love God and do his will will be blessed. Another way that I think God works together for good, that God is for us, is when we go back to Romans chapter 8, and in order to fully understand this next one, I think we have to look at Romans as a whole. So the next one is, God is for us because of his purpose, and we see that brought out in verse 28. But in Romans chapter 1, and I think Paul's just an incredible author, and the way that he builds upon everything that he writes, all the way up to the point where we are, and in all of his writings, all the way into the end of his letters, is just genius. And so, chapter 1 of Romans, he's telling the Gentiles, you have no excuse. In chapter 2, he tells the Jews, guess what? You have no excuse. In Romans chapter 3, he looks at everybody and says, no one has any excuse. You know why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we get into Romans 4, we see that we're justified by faith and not works. Romans 4, 2 says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul's saying Abraham wasn't justified by his own doing. Because if we're justified by our own doing, then how is God powerful? If we're justified by what we can do, we have no need for God. But guess what? We can't be justified by our own doing. We can only be justified by God. Chapter 5 gets into the, res the results of justification. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 say, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope the glory of God. Chapter 6, we're going to see this continuation of grace in the very first part. I know we're just going really fast here, but in chapter 6, we get into the, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? And then Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that sets up what chapter 6 gets into. You are going to serve something. You'll be a slave to something. Will you be a slave to sin? Will you be a slave to God? That's what's getting brought out in chapter 6. Who are you going to serve? And then we get to chapter 7. And we see that because of God, through Jesus, we are set free. You see, we will be a slave to something, so will we be a slave to sin or will we be a slave to God? But when we are slaves to Christ, when we are servants of Christ, 
All these chapters build this wonderful case. They build this case that say, when we're shackled to Christ, what can anyone do to us? And we see that brought out in Romans 8. We see it brought out a little farther than what we're looking at tonight. But it plays into the purpose of God, this purpose that's being discussed in our text tonight. His purpose, what is his purpose? I think Romans 7, 25, and then chapter 8, verse 1, summarize this so well. Romans 7.25 says, Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, I have a little side rant here. I've been saying all week since I've been studying this, I really wish that chapter 8 and chapter 7 had no break and they just continued into each other. Because the very first word of chapter 8 is such an important word that I think a lot of times, I know I've done this, but I think we overlook it. It's the word, therefore. And therefore is such an important word. It's like if I were to tell you something and I was going to say, because of point number A, point number A, point letter A, therefore B. Because of this reasoning, therefore I get to this conclusion. It's a connecting word. It's saying, because of Christ Jesus our Lord, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I know that's the first thing we looked at, and that is an amazing thought to have. When we stand in Christ, there is no condemnation. So what does this have to do with the purpose of God, right? In Romans 8.29, we see that God's purpose is the salvation of mankind. That's what all of this is building up to. According to Romans 8, we can see that God wants the salvation of mankind. And this, this whole book just builds up and builds to that. And it keeps building on itself even past chapter 8 because there's chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way to the end of the book in Romans chapter 16. And they all build on each other. But right here, according to Romans chapter 8, God's purpose is the redemption of mankind. And we see that case built. So when we get to Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, now this is a passage where a lot of people get hung up on two words, foreknew and predestined. So I'm no Greek scholar, but I did, I did some digging because I wanted to see how these two words aid and what Paul's writing to the Christians. He wouldn't use these words if it didn't mean something. And so, when you dig into the Greek, bear with me, we're going we're gonna to look at some parsing here, okay? So, the word foreknew, it's a punctual fact, which means that it has no regard to time. And then we also see that it's an action word. So, the word foreknew is a statement of fact. It's a fact that God knew who you were before you were born. God knows who you are now, and God's going to know who you are even after this life is over. So that's foreknew. When we get to predestined, we see the exact same thing. It is a fact without regard to time, and it also is a statement of action. So what it says is, it is a fact that God had a plan, and God has a plan in place today for the salvation and redemption of mankind. So these phrases, these words, they're actually aiding in the case to build of God's purpose according to to Romans chapter 8. God knows all of his creation, and before time began, God had a plan in place for creation to conform to his son and to be saved. That purpose 
is salvation of mankind. And we can even see what he does to those who accept this in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And to these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So just going through it, we see God has a purpose. And because of his purpose, salvation, he has a plan set in place for all of his creation. And you know what? He has that plan set in place for salvation. And what's he going to do? He's going to call you to that plan because he wants the redemption of mankind. And not only is he going to call you to that plan, but when you accept the calling, he's going to justify you. And once he justifies you, he's going to glorify you. That word glorified shows that in God's mind, he's already done it. When we choose to accept the call of salvation, God justifies us, God glorifies us. And we find that right here in Romans chapter 8. God wants to glorify and redeem you. You know, we stand in the hands of a redeeming God. Amen? And when we stand in those hands of a redeeming and almighty God, no one is going to rip anything out of those hands, ever. And when we drop down to verse 35, Paul even says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And that's a rhetorical question, because you know what the answer is? Nothing. The only reason that we are going to fall from grace is if we continue to live in sin. Right? If we continue to do evil desires, if we continue to do wrong, that's the only way we're going to lose that love of Christ. Because what can separate us from the love of Christ? The love of God. Absolutely nothing. But there's one word back in verse 28 that I haven't really talked about much. And that's kind of the central theme when we look at these three verses of this whole section. And that's the word good. We see that God works all things together for good. And you might ask, okay, how does he do that? Because what happens when a spouse suddenly dies? What happens when all of a sudden you get that cancer diagnosis? How is God working for good in that? How is God working for good when you lose your job and all of a sudden you feel like you've gotten knocked on, off your feet and all of a sudden you don't know what you're going to do, you feel like you can't provide for yourself, you feel like you can't provide for your family? How is God working for good in evil times? How in the world is God working for good? I like to propose that maybe our definition of good is off. And it's not good in the earthly sense, but when Paul's talking about God causes all things to work together for good. He's talking about in a heavenly sense, in an eternal sense. Good is a standalone term in this verse. The ESV says, for those who love God, and if you are in God, you will receive good, but not in the earthly sense. Verse 18 of chapter 8 actually says, for I consider the sufferings, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. If we drop down to Romans 8.35, we see who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That word there, tribulation and distressed, it's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 2 and verse 9 to talk about what's going to come upon those who do wicked. Romans chapter 2 and verse 9 says there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. So I find it really interesting. Paul is talking about how we have a spirit who intercedes for us because it's the will of God. And the same God who has the will of a spirit to intercede for us 
He works all things together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. But right before that, he talks about there's going to be suffering. And right after that, he talks about there's going to be suffering. So if he's talking about suffering and you're not going to escape suffering, how does God work together for good? And again, I propose, it's not an earthly good. It's not an escape from persecution. See, God didn't even spare his own son from pain and suffering. Jesus prayed, if it's your will, let this cup pass me. But Jesus was full human. And while Jesus was on earth, he was tempted. Uh, people hated him. He went to the cross. He died one of the most painful deaths known to man. God didn't even spare his own son from persecution and evil. So if God's working all things together for good and his own son was persecuted, we can expect to be persecuted too, right? The Bible talks about how people are going to hate him. They hate his followers as well. But God causes all things to work together for good in an eternal sense. Good here, just like the words before, is also an active term. It means that God caused things to work together for good. God is still causing things to work together for good. And God will always cause things to work together for good. Just like we talked about, I believe it was last week, how the Spirit helps in our weakness and intercedes for us. That's God working for good in our lives right there. The Spirit, He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words when we pray. Like we looked at last week, we don't know how to pray as we should. But according to the will of God, the Spirit Himself is going to intercede for us in prayer, and He's also going to intercede for the saints according to the will of God. So how is God working together for good in the eternal sense? Well, He sent His Spirit to intercede for us so that way we can have a mediator, a go-between. And that's one way that he's working together for good. We will still see the good that God does for us today. We just have to take off the lenses that we see good with, and we have to view what good is through an eternal lens. Why? Because we have a God who is for us and a God who wants us to see that good. But that good is not something that we will necessarily see immediately on earth. That good is something that we strive for every day, that Paul strived for, that all the apostles strive for, that Christians for thousands of years have strived for, and that's to finish that finish line and make it up there in heaven one day. The good that they're striving for is an eternal home with God. The good that they're striving for is the purpose of God's purpose, and that's to advance his kingdom, to help get the message out there so that way God can redeem mankind. When we look at good, we can't look at this and say God is for us and God works all things together for good on earth. God is working all things together for good. God is for us in the sense of he wants us to partake in a heavenly home with him one day. And that's the good that he's doing for us. You know, Derek Redman, like we talked about, had a father. And he had a father who left his seat. He ran out on the track to his son. And he helped his son who was crying and who was in pain, who could barely even stand... And he helped him cross the finish line. We have a father who has given his son for us. A father who works for good. And a father who is there to help us run the track, so to speak, of life and cross the finish line. Because he works for good. And this father that we have is for us. Tonight, maybe you feel as if, you know, you don't know that this good that God is working in and you haven't felt it lately. And it's just like what was said earlier. Whenever we feel like God is far away, it's not because God has drawn away from us. It's because we've gone away from him. And that God, who we may have strayed away from, is still calling us to him. So tonight, if you feel like 
maybe you don't know the good and you haven't experienced the good, it's available for all those who want the redemption of mankind. If there's anything that we can do tonight to pray for you, to encourage you, just to uplift you, we encourage you to come forward right now as together we stand and sing.